Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Uh, our morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And at the end of uh, the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I'll invite you to say, thanks be to God at the end. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see all of you this morning here at Redeemer Church. Uh, I pray that you guys had some uh, wonderful days this week. Uh, I'm glad we can come together and just pour over God's Word together. Uh, We have been going through the book of Colossians, as uh, some of you may know. And last week, we saw that the Apostle Paul was telling the church in Colossae that there is no value, there is no worth in legalism and asceticism. This this creating of a list of of rules and taboos that you must follow in order to receive salvation or maybe even kind of be elevated to some sort of higher plane of spirituality. And he told the Colossian church to not let anyone disqualify them from the faith or judge them simply because they did not keep these man-made commandments that that were trying to be foisted upon them. And while it may seem... Paul says, as if there was, as if there is some sort of wisdom to what these false, false teachers are saying, their teaching is actually spiritually bankrupt, because legalism and asceticism actually has no power. Paul says, no power at all in stopping sin. Legalism can't do that, and the reason why it can't do that is because legalism only really messes with the outside. Right? It only has to do with the things that are on the outside, these habits that we have. And it can't actually pierce what's on the inside. It can't, can't make its way into our heart. Remember, the Pharisees could follow rules and man-made laws like no other, right? They were great at legalism. But what did Jesus say about them? He said they were like whitewashed tombs, Right? The legalistic practices simply kind of acted as this thin veneer to cover a heart that was actually dead and decaying. And that's that's the end result of following legalism, of following asceticism. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul now turns his attention to what actually does have the ability to penetrate past the flesh and into the core of our beings, into our our inner person, our hearts. And so Paul turns his attention to the realities of the gospel and the impact it has on the Christian heart and life. But before we go any further, let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much for bringing us all here together this morning. Lord, what a privilege it is to to be able to sing praises to your name, to to be able to worship alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Lord, this is, this is a grand privilege that you have given us. And so, Father, I pray that through your Spirit, God, that we, we are not guided this morning by our own emotions, Lord, that we're not guided by, Lord, anything other than your Word and what your Holy Spirit wants us to, to glean from it. So, Lord, we love you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Now, you could summarize the first 17 verses of chapter 3 of Colossians as Paul's call to uh, the church to live in step with their new spiritual reality, their new reality in Christ. Or another way to put it is that Paul is laying out what the process of sanctification is to look like in the life of a believer. Now, sanctification simply means the process in which the Holy Spirit brings our lives and hearts into conformity with Christ. It is that process that we, that we as believers go through to become more and more and more like Christ. Now, Martin Luther said this of the process of sanctification. He said, this Christian life, the one that we're living here and now, therefore is not pure righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This life is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. And this is how we should understand the Christian life now. Sometimes we have the false understanding that as soon as we become Christian, everything in our life is perfect. We're not going to sin anymore. We're not going to do anything wrong anymore. We're going to have this perfect relationship with Christ. It's all going to be perfect. Well, you don't have to be a Christian for very long to know that that's not quite the case, right? We have not yet reached what the Lord is growing us into, and we will not reach it until heaven, or until Christ comes back, whichever first. In this life, here and now, it's about the road. It's about the process, the journey of our Christian character, of our hearts coming to look like that of our Savior. But, again, I want you to remember, this is a a journey. It's a journey that all believers go on, and this journey will look different for each of us. It's not going to look exactly the same as the person sitting next to you. And there will be moments that will send us to the mountaintops, right? Where we will feel the warmth of God's love every single day for for a certain time, maybe even just for one day, and it will be amazing. Our faith walk with Christ will be wonderful, but there will also be difficulties. There will be difficulties that will send us plummeting to the valleys where where God feels far away, where we we can't quite grasp that relationship that we know we have with Christ. But it's important, I think, for us to know that that the Christian life is not about these extreme high and lows, but it's about the steady movement forward within the highs and the lows toward Christ-likeness. Now, in sanctification, we must be clear, it is the Holy Spirit which gives us the power to become more like Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit that does the actual conforming of our hearts to be more like Christ. It is an act of God. 
And this is what Paul is saying essentially in uh, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, where he says, Peter, an apostle, or sorry, this is not what Paul's saying, but what Peter is saying. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You're welcome, you didn't have to read that, Daniel. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of me, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, while sanctification is an act of God, it is God working in us, there is still yet a means by which God uses to conform us, to, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. And so he has not chosen to just kind of zap us, right? And as soon as we place our faith in Christ, we kind of begin to levitate off the ground and sunbeams kind of you know, shine out from behind us. That's, that's not what happens. Instead, he has chosen to work in us as you and I strive to walk in obedience in the footsteps of Jesus, right? As we strive to serve him and obey him. And so the first of Paul's letters to Timothy actually helps shed some light on this. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8 through 8 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. I like to think of Paul saying that. I don't have anything to do with silly myths. Rather, train yourself. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so, like an athlete going to the gym, knowing that their hard work is going to produce results that will allow them to be a better athlete, we too are to train for godliness. We're to train for godliness. And the promise that this training in godliness holds for us is that the Holy Spirit will use it. He will use it in a miraculous way to work in us sanctification. That will begin in this life and be completed in the life to come. So I do want to be clear here, though. This working towards godliness. Our, our part in the process of sanctification, we have to be completely clear, is not what saves you. It's not what saves you. Don't get that confused. There's, there's a, a fact about our position right now, our status right now. And that fact is that you, if you're a believer in this room, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You have been justified. You have been imputed, given, cloaked in the righteousness of Christ himself. And you have been adopted into God's family. Right? That is the reality in which you live. That is your unchanging status before God. Now, sanctification is the Lord conforming you to the status that you already possess. I once worked at a, a pest control, or as a pest control technician when Kayla and I first got married before we moved to Germany. For some reason, when I told Daniel that earlier, he laughed as if I couldn't do that job. I could barely use a hammer, but I knew how to kill bugs, kind of. Now, when I got hired, my status was as an employee of Dayton's Pest Control Company, right? 
However, if you looked at my life, if you looked at my knowledge and skills, they did not quite match up to my status as an employee, of, uh, as a pest control technician, right? But however, as I continue to work, as I continue to learn, I began to conform to my status as an employee. I started to look and act and think like a pest control technician. Now, it wasn't my knowledge and my ability that got me hired. Not at all. That would never have gotten me hired. I knew nothing about bugs other than that they were you know, icky, you know? But learning the trade, studying about it, watching and imitating other employees is what conformed me to the status that I already held as an employee. The same is true for your part in sanctification, right? Biblical discipline. Training for godliness doesn't make you saved. It doesn't bring you to salvation. It conforms you through the Holy Spirit. It molds the patterns and rhythms of your heart to the status of a child of God that you already hold. That is sanctification. And it is this sanctification, as we said in the introduction, that holds the true power, right, to put a stop to the sinfulness of the flesh that we still wrestle with. It does what legalism could never do. And so, as we look at chapter 3 as a whole, verses 1 through 17, is Paul telling us the overarching way in which we are to work toward godliness in our lives. He's kind of giving us a manual of how we are to train ourselves in godliness. Then verses 18 and onward, Paul kind of gives some specifics of how this is to look in regards to uh, certain human relationships. But we're going to be looking at just the, uh, the first four verses of this passage this morning, of this, this chapter this morning. So I want us to first take a look at verses 1 and 2, where Paul begins to give us instructions in how to work towards godliness. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to Colossians now, if you keep your Bibles closed and you just look under the screen, that's cheating. You can't do that. You need to open your Bibles. All right. All right. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, one of the things that we often do as kind of modern 21st century Christians, is attempt to bifurcate the mind from the heart, to kind of tear them in two, right? We kind of see them as, as two distinct entities, right? Maybe one, one for thinking, kind of your, your logical uh, aptitude and all that kind of stuff, and then one for your emotions. We kind, of, we kind of separate them there. But the Bible actually does not make such a strong distinction between the two. In Scripture, they are very much intertwined and inseparable from one another. The, uh, to get somewhat nerdy on you guys real quick, the Brown, Drive, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon tells us that in the Old Testament, it kind of took all of the Old Testament passages that are about the, the mind and the heart, but more specifically the heart, it tells us that the heart means that which makes up the inner man, which includes 
Our passions and desires, our emotions, our dispositions. Now, that's what we usually think of when we think of the heart, right? We think of all those emotional words, that emotional language to describe our hearts. But the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, tells us that not only does it include all of those things, but it also includes consciousness. It includes determinations of the will. But last, not least, it includes the mind. It includes the mind. All of that is wrapped up in the term heart. Now, interestingly enough, the Bauer, Arndt, and Gigrich Greek New Testament lexicon did the same thing. It takes all of these passages in the New Testament about the heart, and it defines the heart by saying that it is uh, the center and source of the wholeness of the inner life with all of its feeling, desires, and thinking and thinking. And so Paul here in verse 1 and 2 hits on something very important. Because if you want to know what makes someone tick, if you want to understand what someone truly worships, if you want to know what's going on in someone's heart, all you must do is actually see what dominates their thoughts. What you spend most of your time thinking on is often that which has captivated your heart. And so is it, is it lustful thoughts that you have? Is it thoughts on how you must make everything perfect in your life at all times? Is it your, the bitter thoughts that you have about someone? Is it, is it entertainment? Are you always thinking about the various things in life that, that just simply entertain your mind? Are your thoughts always on your job? Are your thoughts constantly thinking about even other worldly philosophies and religions? Well, this could go on, but the point is, your thought life is tied directly to your heart. You can't separate the two. And where your thought life is, there your heart is also. And this is why Paul says that if you have been raised with Christ, if you have placed your faith in what He has done on the cross, then you are to not keep your mind on the things of the earth. All those things I just mentioned. Things of the earth. As he says in verse 2, you are to not allow your mind to dwell and ruminate on the things that are on the earth. And the more you allow your mind to dwell on the things of this world, the more sin can sink its claws into you. And the more you are enticed to believe that the answer to all of your problems, if you're constantly thinking about the things here and of this earth, you are enticed to believe that the answer to your problems is found here. It's found, it's found here in the physical world. It's found here on, on earth. Let me give you an example. One of my fears, as some of you may know, is actually public speaking, which uh, you know made this uh, calling to be a pastor pretty interesting for me. Now, when I have a conference coming up, uh, or if I'm invited to speak at another church, it is very easy for me to allow my mind to dwell on my fear. Very easy to dwell on the fact that I do not like speaking in front of others because ultimately I have a fear of man. I don't want to lose face in front of others. And so at its very core, it's a sinful fear. It's a sinful fear. And so I will dwell on it, and I will worry over it, and I will begin to plan out every single detail of the sermon or presentation. I will dwell on it and obsess over every sentence. And every, every word in the sentence. 
I don't really worry about the commas because I don't really know how they work anyway, but the words I do worry over. And I will think about all of the different scenarios of what could happen during that particular sermon. Will somebody speak up and shout out something while I'm preaching? It's happened before. I don't know, will I lose my place? Will I forget where I'm going? Will I stutter? All of these things. And what then does that thinking, that setting my mind on these things, allowing my mind to dwell on those things lead to? A distrust in God. A distrust in Him to use me despite my weaknesses. A lack of trusting Him with even my reputation. And I begin to believe that the solution to my problem is by controlling or is controlling the situation as much as I possibly can. Like I said, planning out every exact word. And friends, that only leads to more fear and more anxiety. That's the result of keeping my mind on the things of the earth. It is trusting in myself rather than God. That's just one example amongst countless. If it is lustful thoughts you allow your mind to dwell on, you'll begin to think that ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment does not come from Christ, but in sexual fantasies and other people. If it is bitter thoughts of someone, pleasure and satisfaction comes from imagining scenarios where they get their comeuppance. Are you telling them off, typically in a way that, that lacks grace and love? And you grow in your bitterness, and you grow in your hatred. And so setting your mind on the things of the earth in the final analysis puts your hope in the things of the earth and not in Christ. Which includes you. Who's putting your hope in yourself? Ultimately, it will not lead to pleasure or satisfaction or freedom from your worries, but in fact it will lead to misery. It will not lead to fulfillment, but it will lead to emptiness. Not to solving sin, but allowing room for more sin. And so Paul tells the church in verses 1 and 2, if you have been raised with Christ, if that is true, if that's your reality that you live in, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on the things above. So those, those heavenly things, not on the things of the earth. Writer Scott Hubbard said it well when he said, Set aside for a moment the day's pressing task. Hush, if you can, the hopes and desires that rushed upon you the moment you awoke. Step away from the morning's burdens. Forget what the hours ahead may hold. Now, Christian, remember, you are going to heaven. You are going to heaven. Very soon, even any moment, you'll be hastened away from all you've known here to take an eternal holiday. You will wake up to find your lungs filled with the air of a better country. Hebrews 11.16 Your sorrows and sighs will be out of sight. Isaiah 51.11 You will see Jesus face to face. Philippians 1.23 And with Him you will be home. 2 Corinthians 5.8 And now imagine what life may be like as we step back in the day's tasks, desires, and burdens. And we kept one eye upward. How might today be different if we brought the hope of heaven into the stuff of earth? If 
thoughts of things above adorned our waking hours. And we might then discover how much of our happiness rests on heavenly mindedness. To seek and set your mind on the things above is to think and dwell on the beautiful promises that are yours in Christ. Now the Greek word that is used in verse 2 for the phrase set your mind is the verb phronio. Phronio. This word means deliberate act of the mind to focus. The deliberate act of the mind to focus. So what Paul means here is that your mind will not always just naturally lift up to heaven. Right? In fact, often it will be much easier for you to have your mind set on the things below, which is why Paul says that you're going to have to be deliberate in your thinking. You're going to have to work at times to push the things of the earth out and away from your mind and purpose yourself to think on the things above. But what's so wonderful is that you, believer, have the ability to do this. You've got the ability to do this. Paul reminds us in verse 3 that, that we've died. right? We've experienced a death. Now, the death here is not referring, as we said last week, to a, a physical death. You know, we're not just a bunch of zombies walking around right now. But a death to our old selves. To our old self who were bound and chained by sin and at the mercy of Satan and his influence. We have died to that old self, and thus we have died to our old patterns of thinking. We no longer have to allow ourselves to dwell on the things of the earth. Rather, we have been freed to have our minds lifted up, to bask in the beauty of the reality, as Paul says in verse 3, of having our new lives hidden with Christ in God. We have the freedom to do that. We are to live this new life that is hidden, meaning secure, in God, in light of verse 4, in light of the fact that when Christ, who is our life, who is our life, when He comes again, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What an amazing promise that is. When Christ comes back in glory, we will be with Him, sharing in that glory. And that, that promise, that is the grand promise that should permeate our thought life. It should direct our thoughts. It should direct our passions. It should direct our heart. We should seek to always have that wonderful future hope on the forefront of our minds as we go about our day. Now, this does not mean we should simply float through life and completely ignore our problems and sweep them under the rug and just think happy thoughts. It's not quite what this means here. Not at all. But it does mean that when we deal with the day, when we deal with the, with the day-to-day monotony, or when we are hit with the pressures and issues of life, our thoughts, and the thoughts that we should seek to have, rather, is, is what does this, does this mean? How should I respond to this? How should I praise God for this, even the good and the bad, in light of my appearing with Christ in glory when He comes again? 
And this is a radically different way of thinking about life than what we are typically used to. That is why Paul says that we should not be conformed to the world in Romans 12.2. And to be conformed to this world does not simply include outward sinful actions, but it also includes sinful patterns of thought. But instead, what does he say in the rest of verse 2 in Romans 12.2? Do not be conformed to this world, but what? By the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation from our worldly and sinful flesh comes through Jesus giving us a new heart. Yes, that is very true. That is absolutely true. But that includes a renewed mind that is to think radically different than it once did before we were in Christ. Let me go back to my example from earlier, and I pray this kind of gives some clarity on what this can look like practically. So again, I have a fear of public speaking. And when I have my mind on the things of this earth, my thought life went where? A really bad direction, in a horrible direction. It led me to being afraid for my reputation. It led me to uh, a lack of trust in God. It, it led me to trying to control the situation, which just leads me to more anxiety, more fear, and more sin. Right? That's what happens when I set my mind on the things of the earth. But what if I were to take this same scenario, the same, the same problem, but I determined through the help of the Holy Spirit to set my mind on the things above? to Jesus and the promises He has made me. What kind of difference could that make? I would, I'd be able to say, okay, I'm afraid to speak in front of a crowd, but, but Lord, I know that my identity is in You. And so if I stutter or get lost in my sermon, it's okay because I know that I'm Yours and You are mine. My performance doesn't change that. I don't have to seek the approval of man because I have been accepted and I am infinitely loved by you as your child. I know that no matter what happens during this conference or event or, or sermon, that I can trust you and know that no matter what, when you return in glory, I will be there too. And friends, you see how freeing that is? You see how transformative that can be? If I determined every day to set my mind upon Christ and the realities of what is to come, there is a weight that is lifted off of me that was put there. Not by, not by the world. Not even, not even by Satan, but my own sinful, earthly-focused patterns of thinking. My own sinful self. So in a very real way, the life that we live now is to be lived out and thought of in light of the life that we will live when Christ comes again. But again, this is a spiritual discipline. There's a reason the Apostle Paul uses words like training and determining. There will be intrusive and sinful thoughts that come unbeckoned into your mind. There will be attractions in this world that will be enticing to your mind. There will be, in, uh, there will be temptations to allow your mind to fantasize all, over all sorts of sinful thoughts. And there will be pressures from the enemy to allow your mind to stray away from Christ. 
1 John 3, 1-3 makes it clear to us that we will not reach sinless perfection this side of glory. It's not going to happen. And that even includes our thinking. But we can, through godly discipline that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, grow in our heavenly-mindedness that is Christocentric, that is Christ-centered. So I want to spend a moment giving some practical ways in which we can seek to have our minds set on the things above. Now, this is just a disclaimer here. Uh, there's a wonderful author by the name of Scott Hubbard. Uh, I have unashamedly stolen much of this part of the sermon from. He has written on this topic at length, and I've personally found his teaching on this to be incredibly helpful in my own life. So anything that I say for the next maybe like five, ten minutes-ish, uh, just assume that I just kind of stole it from him with some tweaks and whatnot. So. Now, the first way that Hubbard says for us to grow in our heavenly mindedness is by beginning our days in heaven. By beginning our days in heaven. Robert Murray McShane, he was a heavenly minded man and a wonderful Bible teacher. He once described his morning devotions, his morning time in the Word and in prayer as a means of giving the eye the habit of looking upward all day. What a wonderful way to put that. It's training yourself to give you an eye that look, looks upward all day. And knowing that his thoughts would not drift toward heaven in the afternoon or evening unless he fixed his mind there first thing in the morning, McShane began his day in heaven. And this includes saturating himself in the word of God and going to the throne of grace in prayer when he awoke. Now that's important for McShane. How, how important is it for us? We need to start our days on the right foot, giving ourselves to the Lord in prayer and in Bible study. And as Spurgeon said, and this is really difficult for me, steal from sleep if you have to. Steal from sleep if you have to. In order to be sure, you begin the day by walking with the friend of your soul. This will set our minds in the right direction as we begin our days. Now, Hubbard then says that we are to set our minds on the things above by Bible meditation. By Bible meditation. You see, the, the command to set your minds on the things that are above means more than just reading about the things that are above. That is important. And you can't, you can't not have that. But it, it requires more than that. Something beyond mere reading is needed. A practice the biblical writers called meditation. Now, this is not... not Pagan meditation, where you try to just empty your mind, allow the universe to flow into you, or whatnot. Rather, take a look at Joshua 1.8, for example. Joshua 1.8. It says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And so typical Bible reading often focuses on paragraphs and chapters, but meditation really focuses on sentence and words. If in Bible reading, as Hubbard says, we walk down the hallway of a passage in meditation, we open doors and explore rooms. The meditative Bible reader may, for example, read all of Colossians 3 in maybe four or five minutes, but then come back to spend as much time, or, or maybe even more, 
pondering the wonder of what it actually means to be hidden in Christ or hidden with Christ in God. To actually meditate on that. To ruminate on it. To think about what it means and what it should, how it should change your life or how it should change the way that you view God in your relationship with Christ. Meditation, as Hubbard says, takes us to the foothills and puts us, or takes us, uh, sorry, above the foothills and puts us on the peaks of God's revelation, His Word. That's, that's what meditation does. Thinking on it, dwelling on it. Seeking to, to bring your mind deeper into the Word of God. Now, maybe serious meditation feels like moving mountains to you. And if so, just smart, start small. Start with just a few minutes a day. Start with maybe just one verse. Our minds, like a muscle, grow stronger through exercise. And by God's grace, what feels impossible now may feel somewhat natural in maybe six months from now. Lastly, Hubbard says we are to retreat to the things above throughout the day. Now here's where I believe we can find the most trouble. It is one thing to begin your day in prayer and Bible study and even spend some time meditating on God's Word. But often the difficulty comes when we go about our day, when we go to work, or when we have tough conversations with our, with our spouse or with our friends, or when the bad news shadows our doorstep, to then have our minds retreat back into the Word of God. To then send our minds back to heaven. But that is what we should prayerfully strive to do. Don't leave your Bible-mindedness, your Christ-mindedness, at home in the morning. You are to take it with you throughout the day. As we said before, we are to not simply have one moment of our day with our mind on the Lord and His Word, but it is to affect our thinking all throughout the day. Through every situation that comes our way. We should determine to have our minds run back to the Scriptures again and again to take those much-needed drinks from the living water. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 6-7 to turn to God's Word when you, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and then when you lie down and when you rise. That covers about everything, right? Now, as we pursue heavenly mindedness, we must not confuse it again with legalism. Can't confuse it with legalism. Setting your mind on the things above is not meant to be this, this cold and robotic process that legalism often is, always is. Rather, it is to give us life as our minds are entranced by the person of Christ. It is replacing these, these lesser, lesser mental pleasures with the greater pleasure of knowing Jesus. It is treasuring Jesus above all earthly and temporal treasures. It is finding the true value and comfort and even intellectual satisfaction in pursuing and worshiping Jesus with your whole being, including your mind. So I want to conclude this sermon with a quote again from Hubbard. I think he says it so well here, and I couldn't figure out a way to say it any better. So, But he says this, he said, heaven is and always will be a world of glory. Colossians 3, 4. 
When God makes all things new, the canyons and mountains, the galaxies and grasslands of this fallen world will groan no more. Romans 8. These broken bodies will be clothed with immortality. 1 Corinthians 15. Human society will share in the very harmony of the Trinity. John 17. How amazing would that be in this world? Nevertheless, the hub of all that glory, whose name will rest upon our foreheads and whose brightness will light up the world, will be God Himself in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Heaven without Christ is like the ocean without water, the sky without air, fire without flame. He is heaven's beating heart. So what does this mean for our heavenly mindedness? It means that our minds are most full of heaven when they are most full of Christ. Heavenly mindedness is an invitation to be with Jesus as much as we can in preparation for the day when we will be with Him always. Because set your minds on the things above means at its very core, set your minds on Him, on Christ. Pray with me. Lord, God, again, I just thank you so much for our time together this morning. Lord, I thank you, God, that you don't want us to just engage with you with our emotions. Even though that is important, but we know, Lord, that our emotions come and go. But Lord, you also call us to engage in worshiping you with our minds. Lord, to to seek you always to set our minds on the things that are above, on the promises that you have made to us. And so, Father, Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, God, that you, you help us do that this week. You help us, help us have that renewal of our mind that brings with it transformation. God, so that we can go out and see the whole world, God. That we can see every situation that comes our way through the lens of your gospel. Lord, help us set our minds on the hope of your glory. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.